Well, saints, normally um, on a day like today, you would hope to have a really uplifting message because here we are, we're, we're going to have a picnic, we're going to have a baptism, and what a glorious time, and now all of a sudden Pastor Lowell brings this message about questioning suffering. Um, what we're going to look at this, this morning is in things that are not like today, things that are like yesterday or things like tomorrow when things happen in our lives. As we've been going through the, the, the book of Hebrews, what we discovered and we kind of looked at last um, Sunday was that when it came to these next couple of chapters in Hebrews chapter 10, 11, and 12, chapter um, 10 through 11 is um, basically it's that hall of faith. You know, we looked at faith from, from chapter 10 verses 19 all the way into chapter 11. And in chapter 12, what we looked at, we looked at this as the chapter of hope. And of course, chapter 13 is that chapter of love, dealing with um, that aspect. Now, last week, we looked at the first two chapters. We looked at the rules for the race. And this morning, we're just going to continue on. And I want to bring an in-depth understanding as far as what chapter 3 is, what chapter 3 means, and how we want to look at it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now, keep in mind, I love how if we could just have the whole Bible be verses one and two, you know, laying aside the sin, laying aside weights, run with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I would love to just do that. But what verse two does is says that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that he went through times of suffering. He went through times of even questioning. And when we get into verse three, it says, for consider him. And now it says, you know, put your eyes back on him who endured such hostilities. In other words, enduring the cross, despising the shame. He endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now, why does the author of Hebrew talk about, you know, considering Jesus, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls? Well, let me just give you one possibility that there are going to be times that we become weary and discouraged in our souls. He says it's going to happen, but, but here's an outcome. The, the key is now consider Jesus. It's, it's a process of working through the grief. It's a process of working through the questioning. It's a process of working through those times of trials and suffering. Now, when we, when we go through suffering... Keep in mind as we go through trials, we go through pain, we go through sadness, we go through despair, you know, and as, as we go through those things, sometimes there comes a point where we begin to question God. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Now, I, I, I have, there are times that I still do, but I'm, I'm asking God, you know, not to question always, you know, God, are you here? Do you exist? And if you exist, this wouldn't be happening. That's not normally the question. But my, my question is sometimes, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And, of course, the enemy always has great advice. He says, because you're such a horrible person, you're just getting your karma. That's what's happening to you, Lowell. 
and 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 yet we say, you know, why are why are you allowing this to happen? And you know, if, if you, are you here during this time? Sometimes we don't really experience that closeness with God. We don't experience that that uplifting because you know sometimes don't we equate when we're on a mountaintop that God is here, and that when we're not on the mountaintop, where is God? That's sort of that whole mindset that comes through that wonderful poster or picture that people get as far as footprints in the sand. Now, if you have one of those, keep it in your house. Don't throw it away because it's not really scriptural, but, you know, keep it there because it's just a reminder. And sometimes you've ever read that saying, it says that when I was walking through and I looked back at my life and I was looking at the sand, every time that there was in the lowest points, I saw only one set of footprints. God, where were you in that time? And of course, the answer is God says, well, I, it was in those times I carried you. And of course, biblically, it's not true. Biblically, there's only one set of footprints in the whole picture. There's never two. God always carries us. That, that's scripture. We're never walking alone. But what we see here is we sometimes ask God and we question it, you know, are, are you, are you, why are you allowing this to happen? Couldn't you have stopped this from happening to me? You know, couldn't you stop this from, from, from coming upon us? And so we, we have those questions. And, and, and don't make a mistake that when we have those times where we're wearied and we're discouraged, don't think that you're alone in that. There upon the cross, Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, he makes that statement. I think you're aware of it. He actually quotes from Psalm 22, the very first chapter. He declares it in the, the Hebrew. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross at one of the most difficult times, it says he endured the cross, despising the shame. But there upon the cross, he declares that incredible statement, quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he, he's, he makes that understanding, we do also recognize that there in the book of Matthew, just prior to that, I want to read to you just a little portion from Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36 through 39, let me just read this to you. It makes this statement, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said, to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter, James. He took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, here's our Lord. He's there, and it said, what, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Yes, but at this point, he is, is sorrowful and distressed. So when you think, wow, you know, here I am, I'm weary, I'm distressed, like... Be, you're in good company. Jesus himself was also in sorrow and deeply distressed. And he said to them, now he's admitting this to his disciples. And he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Here's the Lord going through this trial and he went a little further. He fell on his face and he prayed, oh, my father. 
And now he's calling out to God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's the Lord. Jesus himself is also questioning. God, do I have to go through this? Father, is it necessary? If there's another way, let it be another way. I don't want to have to go through this portion where I'm literally having the, the sins of the world placed upon me and you turn your back. That there's going to be this time of at least three hours that I won't have fellowship with you and I'm going to have the wrath of God put upon me so that the sins of the world are paid for. So that these people whose sins I'm dying for can come into a right relationship. But understand, he was, as it says, he was sorrowful and distressed. And he goes to his disciples. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So lest you think that the Christian life is always walking through daisies. There in the field and up on the mountaintops, there are going to be moments there are going to be seasons. There are going to be events where you're going to be exceedingly sorrowful and distressed. But here's the good news. That that's not the end of the story. It may be a sentence in a paragraph. It may be a chapter in a book. But what happens is this. If you've known that the, one of the... Any of the really, really good books, good books, I mean, in entertaining books and, and incredible books, usually have this. And I'm going I'm to backtrack and I'm going to tell you of, of one that really kind of shows it in my own head. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, it's a book by Tolkien, and, and it, it's, it's an incredible book. But what happens is this, is that it comes out where there's just little, you know, a couple little hobbits, one mainly Sam, and he, you know, receives this ring from his, his uncle, and, and he's going on a journey with this wizard Gandalf. But, but here's the thing. Oh, Frodo, not Sam. Sam's his buddy. Thank you. So as Frodo goes through this, um, he has this conversation, though, with Sam, and he's talking about why are we going through this? They're, they're in this point of despair all by themselves. And, and, and what Sam does is, listen, there, there, there's probably more to the story. Have you ever noticed that any good story has what? Trials. And it's overcoming those trials. It's overcoming the, the pain. It's overcoming the events that are in the negative and realizing that the end, what? The end has a really good story. Now, Keep in mind that, that Frodo makes it to the end of the story, not unscathed. Frodo actually loses a finger as it's chomped off. And, and as he does, the finger's chomped off. And, and, and of course, this Gollum character falls into this lava pit. The ring falls into this lava pit. And so the evil is destroyed. But keep in mind is what, what makes that story so good is what overcoming the trials, overcoming and, and enduring through the sadness, enduring through the hardships, and realizing that the end, I want a better end. That if the story ended when they were having the conversation, it would be sad. If the story ended where Jesus Christ was crucified and put in a tomb, it would be sad. But that's not the ending. Because, oh yeah, this happened on Friday, but as some good preacher saying, Sunday's a coming. 
It comes to this point where there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be this life. There's going to be the, 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 the truth of what we have. So as Jesus goes through these areas and he is sorrowful, as he is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a point where, as you look in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to read verses 7 and 8 to you, just so that you can kind of grasp what's happening. But it declares this in Hebrews 5 verse 7 through 8, who in the days of his flesh, this is speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So although he was the son of God, there was still learning how is it to go through these times of trials, to go through these times of, of pain, to go through these times of suffering? He's learning obedience by the things which he suffered. Here's God learning things. Now, what is he learning? He's learning not that he didn't know this, that he didn't understand that, but he was now experiencing this. God came in the flesh so he could experience this. And, and I think that this is what's so important. That when it comes to suffering, and maybe you've seen this, you know, maybe you've understood this, but one of the things that when you're dealing with suffering, it's really nice to have someone who's been through it or that has been through it with you. Because when you have someone who's been through it, when they say, oh yeah, I understand, and they really do understand, and they can tell you, and this is what, what God did with me is, is he worked these things through my life. And you know what? You can believe them more sincerely than me coming up to say to a woman or to say to my wife after, you know, she's given birth to our children, say, oh, honey, I understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> no clue. And so it's one of those things you can say you understand, but until you've actually gone through the process, you, you can't say you understand. You, you don't know what it is to go through this process. And so when, when it comes to this area, sometimes what happens is this. The suffering and the degree that people suffer I want you to understand that it is not, nor is it ever proportional to um, where your, your walk is with God. In other words, it's not proportional to sin. And that's what the enemy wants you to believe, that the amount of suffering that you're going through is just this proportional thing of how much sin you're in. And, and it's, it's just, it's a lie from the enemy. In other words, the, the enemy says, it's your karma. You've done this, so this is your penalty. You've done this, and so we're going to prolong that. And, and I think that what happens is this. There's a couple of passages you may want to be aware of in case the enemy has ever done that to you. If the enemy has ever said, because of your sin, this is why you're going through it. Look at Job. Job was going through incredible trials. 
Job had lost all of his children. He lost his cattle. He lost his, his sheep. He lost his goats, his camel, everything. And then he lost his health. And then his friends, so-called, I'm going to put that in quotes this morning, his quote-unquote so-called friends come and say, Job, just repent of your sins because you wouldn't be going through this if you hadn't sinned. And yet what we understand is something that his friends didn't. In the very beginning of the book of Job, God takes us to a scene in heaven. And what happens is this, God declares of Job, he is upright. Job is faithful and he's upright. He, he's not a sinner. In fact, he would so much just in case or even if his children might have sinned, he would go and he would offer this ox, this bull for the sins of his children just in case they might have sinned. And so we see here that God pictures Job as upright. He pictures him as righteous in all of his works. And yet he's going through tremendous sufferings. Now, because Job's friends aren't going through the sufferings, they're thinking, Job, you've sinned. And understand, it's just not true. That's not the way that it worked. And so when the enemy tries to tell you that you are going through trials because of your sin and the degree of the trial you're going through is only in correlation to how wicked and how horrible of a person you are. I'm telling you now, it's not true. Old Testament book of Job, New Testament, there in the gospel of John in chapter 9. In the first couple of verses, it's just powerful. I want to read to you the first three verses in John chapter 9. Because now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Blind from birth. Now, what happens is in verse 2, his disciples ask him saying, Rabbi, translated teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, was he one of those children in the womb that gave his mother hiccup continually? Was he one of those that, that, that just kept pushing and keeping her awake? Was he one of those that every time she was about to sleep, he'd kick and then she'd wake up again? Was he a bad womb baby? And you would think, no, babies are just babies. Now, oh, then maybe it was his parents. This is to get back at the parents. The parents have to be horrible. And so the question is, when we see trials, when we see suffering, the normal question is, is did I sin? Am I an heir? And when they asked him, and he says, who sinned, this man or his parents? And so, you know, as I go through trials, there are times like, God, did I sin? Is, are you dealing with me because of my kids? You know, oh, who's sinning here? What's going on? He says, neither. And it's not neither. Jesus answered in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. Verse 4, and I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. The night is coming when no one can work. He's saying neither this man nor his parents sinned. This isn't, this suffering isn't a result of a consequence of sin. Now keep in mind, and I want to make a clarification, in a sense it's not a result of his sin or his parents' sin. 
You do have to understand that suffering is a result of sin, but it wasn't God's choice. God put man, perfect man, sinless man, into a garden of Eden. And he tells this man, everything is yours. However, there's one exception. The tree that is in the midst of the garden, there of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat for. He gives them even the reason, not just don't eat because I said so, because in the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. And then you will have sinned and you're going to die. The day of you eat this, you are going to be separated from me because you're making a choice to say, I don't want you as my God. I'm going to be my own God for a moment. I'm going to allow my own choices. I'm not going to listen to your directives, listen to your dictates. I'm going to do my own thing. As we see here, that's what we deal with in suffering. It is because of sin, but it isn't necessarily ours. It's Adam. And when Adam sinned, the, the world was cursed. We were sinned. Death and disease came into the world. As we look to this, I think it's important to see here that as we, we look to these areas of sin, we look to these areas of suffering, that one of the things that we are making note of is that it's so important that when we do go through those times, that when God brings us someone who says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I've been there myself. They've actually made this program within cancer um, groups that they actually have set up in hospitals where they will put the person who's going through a treatment in contact with someone who's gone through almost the exact same treatment, which is interesting. Why? Because it's, it's one of those things where I, I want you to have someone who's been there, someone who understand what's going on. And, and let, let me share with you just a portion. There's a, a passage, and you're probably very familiar with it, found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in it, I'm going to read a point that you probably all realize and you know, but I'm going to read all the way from verse 3 to verse 11 because I want, to see, I want us to have a context of really what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthian church here in his second epistle. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, isn't this the God that you want, the God of mercy and comfort? Now, why do you need a God of mercy and comfort? Let me just give you one possible explanation. Trials and tribulations, pain, suffering. And so we see he's the God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, what? God's going to allow us to go through a trial, and God is going to be that strength, that comfort through the trial that what? That he's going to bring us to someone who's going through this trial. That we can tell them, you know what? It's true. 
We are going through this time of trial and suffering, but I want to tell you an honest truth that as God, you know, showed himself strong in my life, and here's where his word and worshiping him and seeking him were a source of strength to me, I want to give that to you that it could be a source of strength to you too. That as God comforts us, that we can now, with that same comfort wherein we were comforted, give it to others who need comfort. And so in verse 5, he says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Now, why does he say the sufferings of Christ abound in us? Well, realize that when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, that there is a spiritual battle that is going on. See, you have to understand that we are not just physical beings. Well, we're not. We're not physical beings. We're spiritual beings. And this is why it's so important where, where there may be people who are so concerned about the physical well-being. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be safe. I want you to this. And so all this about the physical, but keep in mind that what the physical, they're saying, I want to do all this for a temporary tent. See, the real you, the real me is what? We're spiritual beings. And once we've accepted Christ, once we're right with Christ, we don't ever have to worry about death or dying. That's not a fear for us anymore. Why? Because the real me, the real you, we're forever in heaven. And so we take a look at this and we see here that as he talks about in the spiritual battle that the enemy has to try to stop us from coming to Christ, it says here in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And, and so we see here that he says, you know, our, our consolation also abounds. And so we, we see here that it's, it's that, that peace that we can have. Now he says in verse 6, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation. He says when we go through sufferings, it's so you can draw closer to God. When we are delivered from those sufferings, it's so that you could draw closer to God. He's, this is the whole thing. Mountaintops and valleys are to do one thing, to draw closer to God. Mountaintops are like, oh, God, you're so good. We're going to have a picnic. We're going to have a baptism. How glorious this is. And then suffering. Oh, I got to listen through a message on the <laughs> baptism day about suffering. But it's about drawing closer to God. And he makes this statement in verse 7. He says, And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, and we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Amen. He says, even to this point where I'm suffering, we're suffering to this point of death, that all of a sudden it's what? That it's to say, then I can't trust in myself. I mean, think about this. Do you know of any man in the trust of himself that can allow himself to escape death? 
Now, you might be able to, for a season, say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid death here, I'm going to avoid death here. But eventually, 10 out of 10 people are going to die. I know they're bad odds. But, but all of us are, if, if Christ doesn't come soon, all of us are going to die. But, but here's the thing. The, the death isn't the end for us as Christians. And, and I think it's important to see here, they said, we have this consolation of death, so there's nothing I can do. It's, it's out of my hands now, and so all I can do is what? I can trust in God. Isn't that what we should be doing in the first place? Just trusting in him and allowing him to do what he does. And so it says here again in verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trusted he will still deliver us. So past, present, future. And then in verse 11, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And I love what he says, that, that all of this transpires and all of this happens because we're praying for one another. You're praying for me. And he was so grateful for the prayers. And I'll tell you what, I understand. I'm grateful, so grateful for the prayers. As all of us are, as we go through the times of trials, as we go through those times of suffering, but when we come through those times of trials, when we come through those times of suffering, I want you to actually turn in your Bibles, and, and if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. And the reason I want to go to John chapter 11 is this, that within this passage, the, there's a header in my Bible that says, Christ raises Lazarus. And what's interesting is that's not really the, the whole context of the chapter. It's the end, which is so cool, but, but to be honest with you, the, the, this chapter isn't Christ raises Lazarus is as much as here is the truth of suffering. This chapter is a chapter of suffering and how people work through it. And I, I find it interesting. I find it fascinating. So, so in my Bible, of course, it, mine has this, this event and it has this, this caption. It says, Christ raises Lazarus. Now, usually when we're familiar and we're reading about, you know, John chapter 11, there's usually two things that, that pop into our head. One is that, that we're in the old King James, it's always the best, where it says, listen, he's been in the tomb now for four days, surely he stinketh. I, I love the old King James. They should make the new King James into the old King James just for this reason. And, and he says, there's a stench that's going on. He's odiferous. He's been in the tomb for four days. You don't want to roll away the tomb. You know, the, 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 the stone that's there. And, and so the, the one is that, you know, he's been dead for four days. There's a stench. And the other is this, Lazarus come forth. I, I, I love that heart. I love what's going on to that. And it's just so, so powerful to see all that that's taking place. Well, I want to begin reading this, this, this passage here in, in verse um, 11. 
It begins this where he was talking with the disciples. They came and he said, Lazarus is, is sick. And so eventually Jesus is telling them now in verse 11, these things he said. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So the disciples have a clue to what's going on. Not necessarily a full clue. They think, oh my goodness, it's great. He's going there, you know, and so, you know, all of a sudden his disciples says, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. But however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep, that, oh, his body's sleeping, he's recovering. And then it says this, Jesus said to them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And he says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. So I don't know if he's saying die with Lazarus, die with Jesus. I'm not sure exactly who. I'm, I'm thinking it, it means Jesus. So when Jesus came, he found, verse 17, that had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near, near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary, Martha, and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, at this moment, think of what's been happening. Martha and Mary are going through suffering. They're going through the loss of the brother. Now, first, they were going through this sickness and then they went through his death, and now they're going through this mourning. And Jesus allows them four days of mourning before he even shows up. Now, in the death process, they say, well, here, here's a chance. Maybe he can change our circumstances, and he can change the event. And so they send someone to Jesus. Hey, the one that you love, he's sick. Come. And Jesus, okay, I'll, I'll be there. But he takes the time. He waits. He stays where he's at, and then he begins to go to Lazarus. And as he travels to Bethany, it takes him a while, and Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And so he allows, Jesus allows Martha and Mary, these two ladies that he loves and that love him, a period of suffering. And they have no answers. And even when Jesus comes, he doesn't say, listen, Lazarus is sleeping, I'm here to wake him up. He doesn't even tell Martha that. He still leaves her questioning. So all of a sudden, you have the, the, the suffering and, and the, this, this area going on where all of a sudden Martha has to suffer the, the loss and the questions that are going through her head. Mary has to suffer the loss and the questions that are going through her head. The Jews that are with Mary have to go through this time of mourning. They're also weeping. Jesus himself also, when he sees everyone weeping, he weeps. Suffering. But here's the wonderful thing. As they come, let me begin by reading here in verse 20. Or verse 19. Many of the Jews who had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Why weren't you here? You can change the situation. 
You, you, you could have been this, this, this fixer of my situation. He wouldn't have had to die if you would hear. If you would have been here, my brother would have not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. Being a good Jew, they knew the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And all of a sudden, we begin to see here this incredible portion now. Then he makes a statement I'm not here to be a temporary band-aid. I'm here to give you the eternal fix. And this is what he's trying to show them. See, we want God so often to do what? Put a band-aid on our situation. And Jesus said, listen, I want to tell you that this is just a sentence in a paragraph. This trial is just... Uh, uh, a paragraph in a chapter or a chapter in a book. Keep reading. Keep plugging along because I'm here to tell you that I am the eternal fix. You want a Band-Aid and, and understand that Band-Aid is going to draw you closer to me, but I'm not the Band-Aid. I'm the eternal fix. And so often what happens is we mistake our relationship for God as one of what? Band-aid theology. God fixed this, God fixed this, God fixed this. And just put band-aids on all these things. Put out these little fires so that, that my day-to-day -day life is good. And God says, listen, your day-to-day -day life can't be good because sin has come into the world. Adam has sinned, and through that death and sin, shame came to all men. The world itself is cursed. You can't have what is going to be eternity now. Now, I've done my part, and, and so keep in mind here, as we look to this, Martha begins to question, Lord, have you been here? And she says, listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I'm here. Well, eventually, we see this. In verse 31, the Jews who were there with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly, went out, followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. So all of a sudden, they, they said, hey, you know, Jesus is here. Well, verse 32, when Mary, the one that sat at Jesus' feet, came where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell down at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, apparently the two had been talking. <laughs> word for word. If Jesus had been here, he wouldn't have died. If Jesus had said, all of a sudden, what? You have this grief coming towards God. If he'd been there, the situation would not. And so Jesus then asks, and, and he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then, of course, you have anyone who doesn't say that they can memorize Scripture. If you ever have a hard time memorizing Scripture, just say this. I'm going to memorize John chapter 11, verse 35. That's, you can, if you can memorize that, you can memorize everyone. So John chapter 11, verse 35, scripture memorization, Jesus wept. That's it. You can memorize scripture. And then he said, well, well see how he loved him. And then some of them 
said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have kept him from dying? Here's the problem. Could God really keep us from dying? And the answer would be yes, he could. But here's the problem. Would you really want to be kept from dying in a world that has sin? I've seen too many too many, family members, friends, saints. And what happens is this, the, the sin that is in the world, the curse that is in there, that either their minds begin to go and they don't remember the things that they used to or their body begins to go and their body doesn't do the things that they want it to do. I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm still thinking that I'm in my 20s and in the Marines and, and I can destroy anything. <laughs> Find out I'm just destroying me. My body doesn't you know, hold up the way it used to. But I still have this mindset that what my body is going to last forever. And then there's others who their body shuts down. Their body doesn't work. Would you really want to go eternally without a body that functions, without a mind that's there? And sometimes God in his grace, what he does is this. He allows death and death frees us from a prison that is our body, a prison that is our mind, a prison that is, is all these things. He's freeing us up so that we get a new body. And, and I love what, what here they said couldn't even stop this man from dying. And the problem is, is that it's appointed unto men once to die. We're all going to die. But here's the problem. Death doesn't have to be the fear. Death doesn't have to be the end. And this is, this is why it's so important to realize when the enemy comes and he's trying to you know, tell you that the suffering that you're going through physically, the suffering that you're going through emotionally, that, that this is your lot in life, we realize what? It's not. It's only a sentence in a paragraph. It's only a paragraph in a chapter. It's only a chapter in a book. That this is only a moment, a momentary part of suffering. And to be honest with you, you had that man who was born blind. He suffered for years and years and years, but guess what? He's going to have eternity with Jesus. So, you know, you think about it, if you've suffered from birth and you suffer until death, if you suffer for 75 years or 80 years or 90 years and there's been this form of suffering, what is that compared to eternity forever and ever and ever? It's just a blip on the scale. Now, eventually what happens is this. Jesus does come and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, of course, comes forth. And as he does so, it's interesting that I want to read from verse 43 and verse 44 of this chapter. It says, now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. It is true that there are going to be momentary times of loss. Yet Jesus Jesus' power over death is undeniable, absolute, and a concrete truth. Yeah. You, can't, you can't go beyond this. Now, here's the key. 
Jesus himself, as we've already talked about, you know, with that passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's one thing to have someone who suffers with you, right? Do they understand? They understand. They understand. Why does the author of Hebrews here in, in chapter 3 says, consider Jesus? Why does it say Jesus is, is one, although we do understand he's, he suffered with us, in all points he suffered with us. Why, why does it say that? Because Jesus not only suffered the same things as we have, and he suffered with us. Here's the kick. Jesus suffered for us. This is what puts Jesus in this whole other camp beyond anything else that we could do. I want to read to you a passage in 1 Peter um, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. See, Jesus suffered. He went to the cross and he died and he raised with this resurrection power so that you and I could walk in the newness of life, could walk in this resurrection power. And as he gives us this understanding, like now I begin to understand that you didn't only just suffer with me, you suffered for me. There's a passage I want to share it with you. Just jot it down if you're a note taker found in, in Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read from verses 3 through 5 just so you can get a context of how Jesus suffered for us. It says in Isaiah 53 beginning in verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we laid, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne, in other words, placed upon himself our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we're healed Amen. see there's this whole different of one suffering with you to say i've suffered for you now, I suffered for you that, that, yeah, one thing that you'll be able to understand, one thing that you'll be able to grasp is that, that one, is I've been through this and I've, I've suffered and I've been through all the points as you are, and I understand what suffering to the point of death is. But you have to understand that what I've done is I went beyond that and I took literally your sins upon me and I bore them on the cross. I suffered for you. I took the wrath of God and the separation so that you would never have to. And we, we look to that and we're just blown away by this. Say, God, now I understand why the author of Hebrews says in this point of suffering, consider him. Look to Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He took this upon himself and so realized that as soon as Adam sinned, God had already known from the foundation of the world that, that his son would suffer. That was, that was already understood. It was already known. It was always understood. There's a portion in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, where 
directly after Adam and Eve sinned, what God does is this. He, he tells Adam, or he tells the enemy, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's already going to be this what? That, that he, there's going to be this point where the enemy's going to be defeated in this battle in this point of suffering, but Christ himself is going to be wounded. God knew, and, and when we see this as the Protoevangelium um, is the first literally prophecy of the, the gospel, it's understood what? That Christ is going to suffer. He's going to be bruised in this battle. It won't be permanent. Now, you know, when we look at the cross, it wasn't that permanent. No, it was three days. Just a short little stint. He had to go down, he had to preach to the captives, and he says, don't worry, oh, you're, you're, you're now with me. So we look to this, and I think it's understanding as we, we see this, keep in mind that it was always, always understood that Jesus was going to suffer, which is why he quoted from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in the, in the, um, in the days of my groaning? And so he, he, he goes on in Psalm 22, to make a statement. I want to read from verses 6 through 7. There he says, I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those people who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip and they shake their head. Say, he trusts in the Lord, let him rescue him. Going on in verse two, 12 of Psalm 22, he says, Many bulls have surrounded me, Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. And you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of wicked of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You understand it's all about him suffering, but not suffering with us, suffering for us. The very first mention that there was going to be suffering when he says, listen, enmity between the enemy and, and your seed and Jesus Christ, there's going to be this battle. Yet with everything in Psalm 22, understand, it's an incredible song about suffering. But in verse 21 of Psalm 22, it's this radical change. He said, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then he says this in Psalm 22, 21, you have answered me. Now, wait a second. Didn't he say, if there's if possible, let this cup? Yes, he did. Didn't he say, my God, my God, why are you saying it? He did. But he has an answer, and the answer is what? It's us with God in eternity. So when we come to these areas of suffering, we understand that it's what? It's just simply the opposition of the enemy. This is what, you know, here the, the enemy has. So when it comes to this point of Christ's sufferings. I want to share with you just a, a portion of scripture found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. It just simply makes a statement. I want to read it to you, 
but it says this, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Now, I don't know why he says rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. When you are at that place of being persecuted, because there's a battle that's going on, and you may think it's just this physical battle between people, but it's not. It's a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. This is what the real battle is. As you look to that battle, I want to share to you just a portion of what Peter says earlier in this epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, I want to read all the way down to verse 24 to give you a context. He says this, For this is commendable if, because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. He said, if you are a Christian, understand what happens as a Christian. You are now entering into this spiritual battle, and the enemy is going to target you. And he's going to target you with his minions. In other words, those people who follow him. Those people whose father is the devil. And and what happens is this. He said, it's okay if you, it's good if through, because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And he goes, says, what credit if, you know, if you're beaten for your faults? That's not the key. Verse 21 For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the real me. This tent, this tent is a temporary thing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into you I commit this eternity. And, and so we see in verse 24 where it says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. It's such a beautiful thing when we look at what God talks about here is is an area of suffering. Two passages I want to close with is this. In in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, um, it simply says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. As you look to that, it, it's, a, it's a powerful statement because those who suffer according to the, the will of God, that, that God has allowed it. It didn't say that he, 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 he understands what we need to draw close, and so in a sense he's purpose it, but it's, it's his will that what we draw close, and, and if this suffering comes, God says, I'm allowing this. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So in other words, when I'm suffering, you're saying that God is faithful? I am. And you should jot that down. And if the enemy says it's not true, then you need to reread the Bible. Because this is the heart of God. One other passage that I want to close with, this is found in Romans chapter 8. And I want to read verse 17 and 18. But it says this, If children, then heirs. If heirs of God, then joint heirs with Christ. And indeed, you suffer with him. 
that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This is the heart of what it's all about. It's the same way where Paul and Silas could be beaten and put in stocks there in Acts chapter 16, and they would do what? They would begin to worship. As they would begin to worship, they were beaten, they were in stocks, and all of a sudden, earthquake came, doors were open, they could go free, and it was all about what? It was all about one jailer and his family, that they could come to a, a saving relationship. And it's like, if, if, if my suffering would cause someone to be saved, if my suffering and God consoling me allows me to tell someone about the, the grace and the comfort that I found in Jesus Christ, how it's one thing to have someone who suffers with us and who suffered the same thing as us, but my Jesus suffered for me. That puts him in a whole nother category. And this is why the author of Hebrews makes a statement, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. When you become weary and discouraged, think of him. Think of this God who said, listen, I have allowed you to go through this but what you're going through is this. It's a sentence in a paragraph. It's a paragraph in a chapter. It's a chapter in the book. And, and to be honest with you, if, if you're, you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, you know what Frodo does at the very end? He gets on a boat with the elves and he goes into Foreverland. He's just, he's there. Or the elves, because the elves are apparently immortal. They'll never die. He, just, he travels with them to their place. This is our promise. Our promise is this, that you today will probably not go through any more suffering than listening to this message on suffering. But if tomorrow or next week or, or sometimes trials come, just remember, don't believe the lie of the enemy that this is consequences, it's karma for your wrongs, that the degree that you're suffering is to the same degree that you've sinned. It's just, it's a lie. But we do go through suffering, we do go through trial because Adam sinned and there was sin in the world. And God says, I, I knew there was going to be sin in the world and my, my son was already ready to what? To suffer for you from the beginning of the foundation of the world. It was already declared there in Genesis 3.15. It was continuing to be declared in you know, Psalm 22, continued to be declared in Isaiah 53. Jesus over and over said, listen, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed. Don't worry. On the third day, I'm going to be rising again. But he would say it over and over. I'm going to suffer. We are going to become weary. We are going to be discouraged. We are going to suffer. So what do you do? Well, I could say, just look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, look into Jesus. But I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and say, go a little deeper and begin to really think about Jesus. Not just look and follow him, but really dive into his life and see why he came, see what he did, and see and understand and believe the results of what he did. Then in the midst of trials, we can have what? We can have him with us, holding us, carrying us, comforting us. 
And, and it's no less than, than what Jesus has gone through. In fact, it's far less because what he suffered for us. We don't have to die and be separated from God ever, ever, ever. We don't have to have the wrath of God poured upon us for our sins ever, ever. Do you understand? That's what Jesus took away. We get to, as the sinners, die and be ushered up immediately into heaven forever and ever. That's incredible news. So as we go through these sufferings, just realize we can say there's sin in the world. And, and God, as you teach me this, bring others that I could share that, that this suffering is only a short thing. But the eternity of my hope is forever and ever. Let that be what we stand on. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we are grateful that you continue to bring us through this chapter. That once again, as we continue, we're just looking that, that this is our hope. And how often in times of trials and, and pain do we need to have hope? That it's only a momentary trial. It's only a, a, a blip in the, the big radar. And so, Lord, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you work. We do ask, Lord, that if there's any who are going through trials and suffering, that, God, that you would be with them, that you would meet with them and comfort them through your spirit, through your power, and that they would be reminded that it's, it's a short time. And eventually there's eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for securing our eternity. Thank you that you've proven so absolute and so definitively that you have the power over death. The same way as you would take Lazarus out of the grave, that you will one day take our bodies from death and make them into new bodies and that we would forever, forever, forever be with you. But it's only your word that will do it. No one else could speak those words, Lazarus, come forth. Only you could speak those words and, and to have power come forth. And one day you will call us to be with you. Oh, Jesus, we so look forward to that day. But in the meantime, as, as we are, are waiting for it, let us walk this race. Let us lay aside weight and sin. And let us look to you, Lord. Let's look for you when we do go through times of, of sorrow and times of trial that we won't question, God, are you here? We know you are. We won't question, could you stop this? You could stop anything. And then when we question why, we realize, Lord, you're doing a work in us. And this is a process. We don't understand why that work is or how that work is, but we do trust that you and your infinite wisdom will not allow anything more than is absolutely necessary to draw us closer to you. And that end result is beautiful. That end result is what we want. So knit us to you to this end, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen. amen.